everyone, it's the week of March 30th, 2021, and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we have a bit of a different show for you today. Last week was one of our deep dive weeks, and our Aussie-based tech editor, Dave Rome, had a discussion with Dave Musgrove from Polygon about how the pandemic-fueled parts shortage is affecting bike design, which means normally that this should be just sort of a standard group discussion week this week. But we are actually not going to have our usual ask a mechanic or what bike should I buy segments. Wah, wah. Because, well, we have honestly have too much other stuff to talk about. So Dave is with us today again, as usual, along with Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief Kaylee Fretz. Pro Hi. Mechanic Zach. Zach I just Pro waved. Me- I just waved on a podcast. I would just like to <laughs> yeah, say that. I, yeah, I, I, I gave a effective. nod. I, I think yeah. I hope everyone could feel the nod. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Our usual resident pro mechanic, Zach Edwards from the, from the Boulder Gruppetto, is not with us today. But to chat about his recent uphill exploits, we do have with us tech writer extraordinaire Ronan McLaughlin. And Ronan, you look, you look like, is that a big ice cream smudge on your face there? You've been eating, you've been binging on ice cream for the last couple of days, I think. I thought you were going to say I look like death warmed up. <laughs> no, I mean, you look, you look pretty lively. I mean, you look a lot better than I do if I had done that, so... Yeah, don't forget now half of this was downhill as well, and that was the most interesting part. <laughs> Ronan, funny you should mention your your downhill exploits as well as the uphill part. So let's let's just kind of get into the first order of business here, which is why we have you on with us today and kind of balance three global time zones here. Ronan, for people who have not heard yet, you went for a, a little bit of a bike ride the other day, right? just a little one. So can you can you tell us a little bit about sort of this little cruiser on the block here? Uh, well, I did a fairly long time trail, up and down a single stretch of road, 76 times on my own. <laughs> and how oh. much elevation did you gain here again? Um, well, the only part that counts is eight, the first 8,848 meters. And how is that number significant? That is the equivalent height, depending on who you believe, of Mount Everest. So, so otherwise known as Everesting. Everesting, is. So as compared to, you know, people who do this sort of thing and you know, might, might be kind of fast at doing this, I mean, how, how, did, how did your time end up on the day? Was it, was it pretty good, kind of average? Like, what, what, what did it end up being? It, it was on the pointer end of the, the timing sheet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kaylee, would you mind filling people in here? I think it was a new dairy record. I think that's what it was. Yeah, it was new Donegal record. <laughs> it, it was the pre- the previous record used to be in Donegal as well, but um, it, it's definitely a new a new Irish record as well. So, yes, definitely a new Irish record. Just to fill everyone in, Ronan happened to shatter the world record for everything. I think what was it by about twenty minutes? Is that right? Yeah, yeah nineteen forty or something like that. Yeah, basically twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as an absolutely absolutely massive feat. Uh, I suspect hopefully this time the record will stand for a little while because I don't really know how many people are crazy enough to do this. Uh, it's seemingly far too, far more than I would have thought. Um, but, you know, there there's going to be a video coming out on Socking Tips very soon that will kind of document the whole thing that you all will definitely want to watch. Um, but seeing as how this is Nerd Alert, we're going to talk more about the bike that you used uh, because the last time that you did this, and you have done this multiple times now, you were on a kind of mildly modified specialized S-Works Tarmac, and not even the newer one. I think it was an SL6. Is that right? It was, yeah. The same day as the SL7 was released, I think. Okay. Just, quite, just coincidentally. Um, yeah. And then this time around, you put together a dedicated build for this thing. Uh, what, what was it? It was a, a giant TCR Advanced SL, and to me, yes, it was a chance to create the absolutely most perfect Everesting bike, but I think it was also, you know, a, an opportunity to cement my status as a, as a true nerd, uh, and I, I put a lot of effort into ensuring that, was, that would be the end result of this bike. It's pretty nerdy, so we should point out it was rim brake, of course. Uh, and w- what were some of the things that you hung on this bike? Uh, so yeah, it was a rim brake with Durace um, DI2. Um, at least the rear derailleur was Durace DI2. There was no front derailleur and I didn't have STI levers. I had time trial brake levers because I had, instead of deciding to hacksaw the handlebars this time, <laughs> I went for the the uh, the more slightly more traditional standard time trial uh, base bars, which, you know, they... 
the idea there was to try and maximize the front end aerodynamics of the bike. Uh, paired to that Duracea two group set, I had an XTR uh, cassette, or at least half of an XTR cassette, and I also had a Duracea um, or ninety one hundred P power meter with a one by chainring. What were the gear ratios you're running? So you took half of the XDR cassette off. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I'm just angle grinder? Like, how did, did you just cut it in half? What did you do? <laughs> well, it's, it's multiple pieces, right? You just install half of it. You just used, a, you used like one of the three. How, how many gears did you have, first of all? Uh, basically, I bought an XDR cassette for the top three sprockets, the 31, the 35, and the 40. Um, and then, then I used a Jure's cassette for... Uh, trying to remember exactly now but basically a 25 and a 28 sprocket and i included a few extra this time because uh while the last time i had the same sort of gear ratio for for going up the hill i wanted a, a bit more acceleration at the at the top turnaround to get up to my top speed quicker um so yeah i'd included right down to like a 17 i think if i remember right uh, so i had a 44 front chain ring and then a seventeen to a forty on the on the rear. How was the shifting? It, it was spot on, perfect. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, okay. And no, I, actually, I believe I dropped the chain once. Actually, I'm not sure why that happened, but yeah. Um, for the rest of the ride, no issues at all. And I'd actually other than the exploded tire as well. <laughs> oh, come on, you're giving it away, Dave. <laughs> We're getting to that. We're getting to that. Just before we get to that, on on the on the on the rear cassette there, I had actually shifted the uh, the seven sprockets that I had uh, to the sort of drive side or to the outer side of the free hub. I'd used a single speed spacer behind that cassette just to straighten up the chain line there and and find a few watts of efficiency in, in that as well. And and naturally, you were running a waxed chain, right? Of course, of course, yeah. That's a UFO drop chain. Um, yeah, just you know, if you're going to go to all these extreme lengths, you may you may as well do what has now become, I suppose, the the basics, so to speak. Yeah, well, if you if you talk to Dave, it's a requirement for, for the bike to even function. Um, what what were you running for wheels and tires? I was running AX Lightness Ultra T thirty eight carbon wheel set, uh, sub thousand grams for the pair. I had Vittoria Corsa Speed tubular tires, which are not known for their uh, robustness they are not designed for using on rural irish roads they're designed for time <laughs> time trials and smooth surfaces um and yeah i definitely tested it to its to its limits so i did um and i think past its limits i think you passed its limits the, yeah, front, yeah, one, yeah. the front one didn't pass its limits the rear one passed <laughs> its limits yeah well that's probably probably better that way uh now someone now people would generally think that for something like everything you would want to primarily just have a bike that was as light as possible and, and this bike was light like what did it come out to be it was 5.5 kilos um so i'd used like cane creek e brakes and uh speed play pedals and stripped back everything i could giant had stripped the paint off this frame uh, i'd used a carbon rail saddle everything was you know just trying to get it as light as possible yeah that's 12 yeah, so that- 12.12 freedom units for those who don't understand <laughs> kilograms Yes, yes. So super light, but but you did also pay some attention to aerodynamics too, right? I mean, there was one key addition that you made, right? There, there was, yeah. And that that's the sort of conundrum here is that it's, it's it's almost the the perfect and the most difficult sort of um, modeling or challenge, basically. And that half the event is uphill at super slow, steep gradients, and then the other half is that highest speed you could you could imagine on a bike and what i wanted to do was you know obviously get the bike as light as possible but i was willing to forfeit some weight gains on the front end to get more aerodynamic and ultimately in the end up what i did at the very last minute again in search of aerodynamic gains i stuck a huge big fairing onto the front end (laughs) just to, (laughs) to, to cover up the brakes and all the cables and basically turn this into a yeah a fully integrated super bike basically I know that you were kind of working with uh, like Robert Chung and some others on, on optimization ahead of this, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Chung has been on this podcast before. I think he's somewhat well-known at this point. Um, does a lot of sort of aerodynamic optimization. Inventor of the Chung method of determining your aerodynamics, basically, on any, on any road. We refer to him as internet famous. He's internet famous, for sure. So, so what, what did he... 
I'm assuming he helped with that balance, right? With the arrow to weight balance. I mean, did he give you kind of like an optimum weight to try to hit and then focus on aerodynamics or how, how did that, how did that work? Yeah. Like, um, Robert, Robert was, was a huge help in this, but there was also help from, uh, Josh Portner at Silka and, and Dan Bigham, uh, who's, uh, track famous, maybe also internet famous. Um, and, and a few other people as well. And, we actually at one stage had McLaren Formula One team engineers working on on some of this, so yeah, it got it got quite in depth. And yeah, um, I think Robert has so far worked out. He's still making some of the calculations, but he worked out that um, the aero gains, so not just the fairing, but in the fairing, and uh, by choosing a proper time trial suit rather than a, just a, a race suit, and a few other changes we made at the last minute that we're saving something like 10 meters per lapse just in in drag uh reduction so yeah i, I think there's a, a a chain of emails that has gone into the triple figures between myself uh robert chung and, and tom anholt on on just optimizing everything around this ride from tire pressures to tire choice to uh yeah everything aerodynamics Ah, so basically all the usual characters. <laughs> it's our cycling tips comment section. Exactly, exactly. Well, Tom in particular. Hi, Tom. Hi, Hi Tom. Tom. Good, to, good to hear from you. Thanks for thanks for the help on this one. Uh, so, did did everything equipment wise go to plan? Like, did everything work the way that you wanted it to? Um. Yes. Yes. No. Obviously, we had the tire failure, but you know that was. Oh, we haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> uh, I think we did touch on it, but that that was yeah, sort of. Uh, so yeah, I had a rear tire blowout at um, thankfully near the top of the descent. So I was able to get the bike under under control and limp down the descent. And I did consider crashing myself into the grass because I thought I was going to hit the tarmac. But thankfully, kept it upright and got to the bottom. But I would say that was more through misuse. You know, using super light tires. Uh, although I'd done two Everstings and two halves on similar the same model of tire previously, not the same tires, but the same model um yeah i just didn't get as lucky this time and and that was probably because i was pushing the bottom turnaround so much i was really trying to you know gain every second i could on in the turn at the bottom and i definitely locked up at least once if not twice and you know perhaps that's what's led to the the failure in the tire there uh i also had a bit of a nightmare with my um I can't really say left pedal or left cleat, just my left side in general um which you know if anybody knows me i'm sort of infamous for adjusting my cleats on literally every ride uh, and i had to make a couple of adjustments to these cleats at 60 70k an hour on the descent because i wasn't quite happy with the the float <laughs> so, uh, yeah so in the first hour i think i increased the float and then about two hours later i decreased the float and then about an hour later again i increased it again so that probably cost me a few seconds as well but who who knows how much it gained me in terms of yeah. Power production. You you were really living up to the pedal's name there by uh, playing with them at speed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, and 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 just to to outline what would have been required for this. I mean, the way you adjust the float in those in those cleats, it it would have required Ronan kind of reaching down with what it is like. A, a, I think it's a two mil Allen key. It's either two or two and a half, and like adjusting these tiny little set screws, right? Uh, well, it's a tiny Phillips head screwdriver. Um, so yeah, I just you know got. Uh, the I always have it on hand, so I was able to say to the guy, "Give me the bottle, go into my bag in the pocket on the side, open the zip, and there's a screwdriver in there." And next time, <laughs> next next time I come out, I I'll need that. Most people have like a energy gel electrical tape to their bidden, but it sounds like Ronan has a small Phillips head screwdriver ready to go straight from the bidden. I, I, I would have just carried it with me, but yeah, obviously that's an extra few grams, and then the risk of carrying a, a quite sharp object. Uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I disregarded <laughs> that safety concern when I was, you know, had my foot crossed over the top tube at 70k an hour with <laughs> quite quite a strong crosswind. And, and uh, if if this is not already plainly clear to everyone listening, Ronan is not just fit; he's quite a talented bike rider. So this is not something that we would at all recommend that anyone at home attempt to do. Uh, so so far, let's see. Let, let's recap here. You had a rear tire blowout uh, at, what did you say it was, like 60K an hour? Uh, I think it was probably slightly less because it was near the, the top just as I was accelerating. So at least 40 plus, like, and yeah, I should probably dive into the fight and figure out exactly what speed. Okay, so he, you had a rear tire blowout at pretty good speed. 
you had another instance where you were adjusting the float on your cleat while going downhill as fast as you could manage uh, with a small Phillips head screwdriver with your left leg tucked over the top of the top tube so that you could access the cleat. Um, I've had loads of practice. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I, apparently. And, and, and you were doing the turnaround on this road, that, which did not look particularly wide. You were doing the turnaround at the bottom, coming down from basically your, your top speed on the descent and breaking as hard as you possibly could for 76 laps, making that turnaround, and then accelerating back up as fast as you could. So uh, surprisingly, surprise, a surprisingly technical ride, considering that essentially what you were doing was 76 laps up the same stretch of road. It kept it entertaining, that's for sure. Uh, Stop me from getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> but it actually, you know, all, all joking aside, I, I genuinely... You know, I've always been a Formula One fan and motorsport fan, but this gave me a renewed sort of appreciation for what those um, drivers can do. You know, lap after lap, hitting the braking points perfectly, hitting turning points, apexes, everything absolutely perfectly. And yeah, that was that was the biggest challenge I faced. I would, you know, I, I definitely didn't get the turnaround right on a, on a number of occasions. But uh, yeah, that was the best that I could manage. You know. But un- unlike those Formula One drivers, it didn't sound like you had any motor failure on the day. Uh, <laughs> McLaren really helped you out there. <laughs> the, the motor seemed to work out just fine that day. Yep. Yeah, big thank you to McLaren. <laughs> so I have a question. You did, what, 701 or something? Seven, what was your last? Your last 704. Attempt? 704. So you took 24 minutes off. You have the power files. Was that engine or optimization? Uh, a bit of both. I was slightly disappointed having put in all the work there that the, the, the engine wasn't going as well. Yeah, it was, you know, it, it, it went better than the last time, but I was really hoping that those 24 minutes came from myself personally, but I think a good chunk of it came from the bike and, <laughs> and the optimization. And uh, yeah, they, it's, it's, not, it's not just that as well, but the weather conditions, you know, this was the first opportunity we've got since last last summer basically where everything from the one direction to the you know temperature to humidity to air pressure uh, everything was right and trying to get all those things on the same day is next to impossible and what ended up happening was the wind did turn around a little bit to a bit of a crosswind rather than a tailwind but it was uh, the best combination we were you could, you could you could wait forever waiting for the perfect moment and and in the end up you just have to put your front wheel on the start line and go with it well, and, and what's kind of ironic is, you know, despite the fact that this was an Everest thing, in, basically in numbers only, you were still waiting for these ide- ideal weather conditions, just like <laughs> you would had you actually been trying to summit Everest. That's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And, you, and we had a video team there, so you had to line it up when Phil was, was around. <laughs> got pretty lucky, I would say. I got pretty lucky. You- Mm-hmm. Well, I dare say this was a combination of luck and lots of preparation. So, Ronan, our hats are all off to you. Congratulations on this monumental feat. That was quite quite amazing. And I personally, I've only seen little bits of the video, but I definitely am looking forward to seeing the full documentary when it comes out soon. There's going to be a documentary going up Wednesday, which is actually probably, it's by the time you hear this, it'll probably be up. And there's also going to be a video and story on the bike, which I know listeners of this podcast will be particularly interested in we'll go go into a whole bunch more depth than we just went into in this chat just now uh yeah that part i think is is fascinating for this particular effort yep so don't you all worry you guys are all going to be able to just nerd out big time on all of this so we will not disappoint you 100 percent. all right well ronan congratulations again that was absolutely absolutely massive uh, we should point out, like I said earlier in the uh, in the intro here, that uh, we we are having to align three very disparate time zones here. Kaylee and I are in Boulder. Dave is in Sydney. Ronan, you're in Ireland. So uh, it's quite late for you right now. You should go to bed. Much appreciated. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Ronan. <laughs> I, I'd just like to add, you know, you said not to try uh, adjusting your cleats at home. I would, you know, are we not just going to finish by saying not to try Everesting at home or not to try putting aero handlebars on a road bike or <laughs> not to try using a one by chain ring with half a cassette or not to try <laughs> a fairing on, your, on the front of your bike. So a lot of things not to try at home here. Maybe maybe don't try riding um, 76 five minute intervals at 
like five watts per kilo either, that's probably something you shouldn't try at home. Because mm. good luck. Maybe try. Maybe just maybe we'll leave it with try an enjoyable bike ride on a normal bike. Yeah, there you go. All right, I I will heed that advice. I, I will definitely <laughs> heed that advice. All right, thanks again, Ronan. See you later. I was actually getting up to leave there. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> 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 I better I better press stop on everything here first. I, I would just like to reiterate as uh, the person who was going through all of the massive piles of resumes that we received from when we, when we opened up the tech writer position several months ago that uh, I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, Ronan had already been the world record holder for everything at the time when he applied for this job. And he buried that little tidbit like three pages into his application or something. So like I, I had to dig for that and I had to, I looked at that and like, wait, what? And then I had to verify that this was actually a person, that the person who was actually was so yes ronan is not only fast and really good at his job he is surprisingly quiet and humble about his capabilities too so again hats off to that guy extremely well humble done. yeah yeah and i'm glad i will say i'm glad that when we did that job search that we where we decided to sort of take away the usual you know media experience requirement or journalism degree requirement or something like that because frankly yeah, Ronan is fantastic, and he has neither of those things. Indeed, <laughs> he turned out indeed. to be an absolute superstar. So, indeed, he had spent the previous few years working as uh, working for a UK nonprofit, Sustrans, which is a sort of a alternative transportation nonprofit. So, yeah, basically teaching school age kids how to ride safely on on the roads. So, pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Anyway, next up on the agenda, at this point. Most of the people listening to the podcast has probably become familiar with the saga around the Ever Given, that massive container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal for nearly a week. So it has finally been freed, uh, but not before causing some huge delays in international shipping, including a container of canyons that was headed to Europe. Uh, however, this is just basically exacerbating what was already a global shortage of bikes and bike gear, fueled by huge surges in demand over the last year. Uh, but with only really small increases in supply. Our, our friends over at Pinkbike, they, they wrote a story about a presentation given in Taipei recently by specialized VP Bob Margavicius, where he said it could take, quote, a year or more for the industry to fully recover and build back up the inventory so we have the product available for the market, unquote. Basically, it's bad. So what he was outlining is that Parts that typically have had like 30, 60 day lead times are now being quoted at 300, 400 days. And, and while you'd think the bike industry would be clamoring to turn up the machines to just hurry up and make more stuff, it sounds like a lot of the major bottleneck is on the component side. So bike industry sales are up around like 40, 50%, depending on who, where you get your numbers. Uh, Margavisha says that factories have really only increased output by around like 10 or 15%. Dave, I want to ask you, why is this? I mean, you would think that if you have this massive surge in demand that you would be doing absolutely everything you possibly could to try and meet that demand to just kind of capture those dollars while you can. Yeah. So why is, why is there this huge lag? Uh, we, we touched on this briefly in, the, in last week's episode with, uh, with Dave Musgrove, but basically there's, there's always an inherent risk involved in, um, I guess, rapid expansion. So there's a lot of unknowns ahead down the road. And if brands were to just immediately uh, spend the money to increase capacity, increase manufacturing capacity, there is a risk involved. So there's, especially in Asia, there's, um, I guess there's an aversion to risk, I'd say, where, where a lot of these brands do, do see such a boom in the industry as, um, I guess, a risky maneuver to try to keep up with. And they, they want to be more conservative in their growth. Uh, there's that. There's also the fact that if you want to increase capacity of uh, your manufacturing capacity, it does take time. It's not like you can just switch it on tomorrow. You need to invest in your facilities, invest in your staffing, invest in your uh, protocols for for the manufacturing, and and that can take you know a year plus. So it's not it's not like they're they're not expanding, but they're obviously they're just they're unable to expand at the necessary rate here because everyone is caught off guard. And then there's also the fact that some of them just don't want to expand at the rate they're being asked to. Right, because basically it's not like these factories were, you know, had a bunch of excess capacity that they weren't using already. I mean, most of these factories, they've been in business for quite a while. They're pretty good at optimizing things so that they don't have a bunch of kind of like wasted capacity that they're not using. Yeah. 
So they were pretty much already topped out. And for them to really increase those numbers significantly, like you said, it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of money. And the big question in the industry right now, uh, it's the question that everyone that I've talked to about this subject keeps asking. Um, you know, we are seeing a big coronavirus fueled, like, you know, massive boom in cycling right now. But the big unknown is whether this boom is temporary or permanent, because if the issue is that, you know, the issue is that if it's temporary and companies invest an awful lot of time and money to ramp up production, that production capacity might be coming up to speed right at the time that this bubble might be bursting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Specializes VP that, that in, uh, in that article on Pinkbike, he's sort of, he's calling on contract manufacturers to increase capacity, which is kind of very low risk for, for the brands that are selling the product, right? He's trying to sh uh, move the, the risk of expansion, move the expense onto contractors uh, and let them handle all the risk, which is, is, I guess, how this industry works. But it's also you can understand why the people having to invest the money and take on all the risk are trying to be a little bit more conservative here. Right, because basically the the supporting factor is what they the position that they're in right now. It's like we are having our best years ever. We are making everything we possibly can. We are selling everything we possibly can, and we're basically just pulling in all this extra money without having to make any big infrastructure investments. Yeah. So it's like, why would we take on that risk so that you can pull in more money when we are just fine over here? Yeah. Yeah, Kaylee, you look like you wanted to say something. I just want to buy a chain. <laughs> That's all I want to do. <laughs> just please, just just make more chains, please. We need chains and brake yeah. pads and lots of things. Just make them. Just make them. So Specialized, I think, was saying their sales are up 38%. Yeah, I think they, they quoted 38, I think, at least in the U.S. Uh, industry-wide. I think I heard something closer to 50%, although it's unclear to me whether that uh, whether or not that also includes big box stores. Yeah. Um, but, but either way, I mean, we're talking about an industry that you know, year on year typically is pretty flat or like very, mm -hmm. very small growth. Like we'll see like, you know, increases in one category, usually yeah. coupled with a decrease in another category. Yeah. category. Over the last two so, decades. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to see a jump, not only in double digits, but double digits where the first number is like four or, you know, close to five, like that's a, that's, it's hugely, hugely disruptive. And it's just not something that's going to be fixed anytime soon. So I know that we've been kind of beating a dead horse here. Yeah. Um, but just to reiterate our messaging over the last few episodes, if you have been considering getting a new bike, be prepared to not get it for a while yeah. and make sure you've got spares for the bike you currently have because you might have it longer than you originally expected, which honestly is probably just fine anyway. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of the boom, there was a, another stat that came out this week, which was uh, Giant's financial reports, which uh, announced that they've only really seen about 10% growth from 2019 to 2020, uh, 2020. Uh, but you know, that's giant as a, as a larger company, including their manufacturing. Uh, what was most interesting though, is that, uh, 26% of the group's revenue were represented by e-bikes. Um, so giant, I guess we're a little bit slow to the e-bike movement. Uh, a lot of the German companies like Accel, for example, have really, um, been ahead in that game, but, but giant have, only recently in the, in the last few years invested in e-bikes. Uh, so to see that, that a quarter of their bike manufacturing is now uh, e-bikes, that's uh, quite telling of where things are headed. For sure. And, and like you said, I mean, they were a little bit slow to jump on the e-bike bandwagon. Um, Specialized, for example, I mean, this, this was even as of, I think a couple of years ago, I know at least in Europe, my understanding is that in terms of dollar sales, e-bikes had already surpassed uh, sales for their non-powered bikes. Um, and that trend is certainly had, has been continuing recently. So I would expect that, I would suspect that's even, you know, more skewed now. Yeah. Want to buy a chain? <laughs> <laughs> over here, chainless, hanging out. Yep. 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 No chain, no chain for you. No chain for a lot of people. No chain. A lot for of expensive balance bikes getting around right now. In, <laughs> yeah. Indeed. I, although I suspect for smaller companies, like like Whipperman, for example, you know, I'd, I'd bet that, you know, the, the companies where the chain companies, at least certainly where there were maybe like someone's third or fourth pick or something, they're probably doing a lot better than they had been in pre previous years. So I, I dare say there's probably a lot more of those chains out there. Yeah. 
Uh, anyway, for, speaking of chain availability, is actually not all that bad in Australia. So if you really need a chain, I can, I can, I can buy one at our with Australian tax and then send it. Oh, good to know. No, good to know. I think I could actually get chains because oh, I know right. Zach. Zach will figure out how to get chains for me. But yes, uh-huh. we all know I don't replace chains anyway. Just, what do we just what do you take guys? a link off of every customer's bike and <laughs> build? <laughs> You know, you you laugh about that, but back in my bike shop days, really early on, I mean, that's something that we that we would do. Like back when back when the 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 side loading of chains wasn't nearly as as demanding as they are now. I mean, you know, it, when you were installing chains that were packaged in retail packaging, you would always end up with like two or three extra links, and it mm-hmm. was almost kind of just for fun. There was a period where we would just be saving these links and just like, you know, re-riveting them all together to make a whole chain. And we would just run it because we were bike shop employees and we had no money and that worked. Amazing. <laughs> Have you made, ever made an entire chain out of master links? Because that's really when you know you're yeah. you um, reached peak. That would be very expensive. Seth, uh, <laughs> Seth from Seth Bike Hacks on YouTube recently did that. Um, and he, he went all out. He used the like the SRAM Eagle 12-speed rainbow links. Which are oh like God. they're not cheap at all. Um, so. And that'd be like a thousand dollar chain. Yeah. Yep. Look cool. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. All right. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so both Canyon and Factor have released new Aero road racing bikes within the last year. Uh, Canyon with the latest generation Aero road and Factor with the Astro Vam. And both have had some issues. Uh, the Aeroad had issues shortly after launch with some kind of startling abrasion wear on that flexible seat post design. And then there was that now kind of infamous Matthew Vanderpoel uh, broken handlebar a few weeks ago. And then on the factor side, uh, Israel startup nation writer Tom Van Asbrook, uh, he broke the top of a steerer tube clean off at Omloop uh, back in, I think, late February now. So both, ca- uh, both Canyon and Factor have since provided technical information explaining the failures that you can read in much more painstaking detail on cyclingtips.com right now. But while the two front-end failures were very different uh, in terms of specifics, the root causes, in my opinion, actually kind of seem to have a lot similar to each other in that they both kind of involve some degree of modest impact and user error. So supposedly Vanderpoel was on cobbles, uh, Van Asbrook supposedly hit a curb, uh, Canyon says the aeroed handlebar failure was at least partially related to a, a likely over-tightened lever clamp, while Factor said a major contributing event was an out-of-spec fork compression plugs that the teams end up using, uh, that the team ended up over-tightening to keep the headsets from coming loose. Um, so I should point out that both companies have stressed that none of these occurrences were due to manufacturing errors, and that everything thoroughly passed their internal tests. But when these bits were subjected to stresses that kind of fell basically a little bit outside of their intended values or expected values, then that's where these failures occurred. So I feel like I've asked this before, but do you feel like the industry is cutting a little too close in terms of safety factor with top end stuff? I mean, basically, I, mean, I, I know I've asked this question before, but I mean, are we trying to save too much weight? Is it trying to save too much weight or is it trying to save too much weight while doing silly or aerodynamic things like making all the cables go in next to the headset? or inside the headset and things like that next to the steer tube. Because it feels like, you know, the 6.8 kilo weight limit, right? Like that was put in place a long time ago now, back when, you know, 6.8 kilos was probably a good lower weight limit. There are, I think, probably quite safe bikes out there that are significantly lighter than that. It's when they try to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, basically, that we run into issues where you've got a desire for super low weight, but also a desire to keep things all internal, all integrated, all super aerodynamic. And then we end up with funky shaped steer tubes and stuff rubbing against the, you know, stuff rubbing against the steer tube and compression plugs that don't work and all these other things that seem to be resulting in, in issues. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really good point you bring up, which is that 6.8 kilo weight limit was based on a, in a timeline where rim brakes are the normal, low profile rims are the normal aerodynamic aerodynamically shaped frames pretty much never seen uh and now we've got all this new technology we've got disc brakes that are heavier we've got pretty much everyone running deep deep profiled rims wider tires aerodynamic uh designs with much larger profile tube shapes and and integrated uh cabling systems and all of that stuff is heavier and yet we're still trying to hit the same weights and yes technology and materials have come a long way as has engineering, but at the end of the day, potentially all of this stuff is is meaning that we're having to make compromises that 
yeah, I mean, as, as James sort of alluding to, compromises that come at the potential expense of, of guaranteed safety. Yeah, and again, I mean, I, I already mentioned this, but, you know, a, a lot of readers have kind of scoffed at this idea that, you know, these companies are sort of, you know, self-testing, self-validating their designs and engineering. Uh, I mean, there is some truth to that, but the, the fact of the matter is, in a lot of cases, a lot of this testing actually exceeds industry standards for what for what is required. Um, but the the issue here again is like when you have, you know, really, you know, well intentioned and you know apparently very skilled and talented engineers designing a lot of this stuff. It seems that more often than not these days, with higher end bikes and components it almost is sort of assumed or expected that whoever is going to be using or working on this stuff is going to be following installation and servicing instructions to a T. So, um, you know, again, you know, Canyon says that the handlebar design was totally fine with their in-house testing and they just didn't account for someone over tightening a lever and, you know, possibly crimping a handlebar. So they've since said that they are uh, increasing the wall thickness of the handlebar where these levers are clamped to basically just give it more wiggle wiggle factor as far as you know people being a little bit ham-fisted with stuff um and then the, the factor thing i mean they they really um they really kind of boiled it down to uh one compression headset compression plugs that i guess were out of spec because they had the wrong surface finish so they like the the, the inside or sorry the outside of the compression plug basically didn't bite or grab onto the inside of the steer tube as well as it was supposed to so then the you know, headsets were basically starting to loosen up over time because that compression bolt up top just wasn't really holding everything the way it was supposed to. But in an effort to, you know, try and keep these headsets from coming loose, apparently the issue was that uh, Israel Startup Nation team mechanics were just sort of tightening them more. Um, and then as they were tightening them more, um, apparently there was also an issue with an out-of-spec um, taper on these compression plugs, which made it so that the bottom of the compression plug kind of expanded out more than the top, which then put more uh, point pressure essentially on the inside of the steer tube down there. And at that point, when you, know, you combine that with uh, Van Asbrook apparently hitting a curb, then that was what caused the steer tube failure kind of down inside the head tube, which is, a little, which is more unusual than having it shear off like right at the top uh, upper headset bearing. But either way, like you just, I mean, I know, we, like I said, we've, we've asked this a bunch of times, people do want light bikes, um, you know, as, as tech media, I mean, I, I think we certainly, you know, shoulder some of the, I don't, I guess I don't, I don't necessarily want to call it blame, but I, I think we start, certainly shoulder some of the responsibility for kind of continuing this narrative that, you know, lighter is better all the time. Uh, I think all things being equal, lighter is certainly better better, but you don't want it to do that at the expense of durability or serviceability, that sort of thing. I like that we're having this conversation right after talking to Ronan about his 5.5 kilo fared rim braked one by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With don't do what Ronan it, does. Exactly. I mean, and, and with, with a tire that blew out, um, because it wasn't really necessarily meant to be doing that sort of thing. And, you know, honestly, we're, we're lucky that he didn't hit the deck that day. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I mean, there is always this expectation. Like we, we've certainly, the industry in general, uh, ourselves included, has sort of made it cool for bikes to be super light. And like you pick up a really light bike on the floor and like it's impressive. You like a light bike is really cool. It's really fun. They feel good. Um, but it, it, it probably needs to be emphasized more that sometimes those weight decreases will come at the expense of something else that you might care about. Agree 100%. However, I think it's mostly your fault, James, not my fault, just to be clear. <laughs> it, it, it used to be your fault, too. There was a time when it was your fault. <laughs> that is true. That is true. No, I, I mean, like, yeah, it's just, it's just you know, it's bike, bike brands pushing the boundaries so that when anything goes wrong, there's no, there's no margin for error, right? It's just decreasing that margin for error down to the point that's, I think, probably pretty questionable for a consumer product, to be perfectly honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if that's the sort of thing that's going to send someone over the bars, then maybe you should rethink designing your bicycle that way. Yeah, I mean, it's I'd, I'd like to point out that these big brands absolutely want to create a safe product. I mean, what's happened here and out there and in the races uh, for Factor and, and Canyon is is a true nightmare for the engineers and the brands involved. I mean, it's 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 absolutely not at all what they ever want to have happen to to no, anyone. Or, you know, especially it's, it's not good for their brand. It's 
not good for their athletes. It's not good for the consumers. It's it's just bad business for them, and they they absolutely do not want these failures. Uh, and they go out of their way to to make what they believe to be a safe product that that I guess is um, hitting the the market demand as far as you know hitting the right weight that people look at when they're buying these bikes, and you know still still making the bike marketable. Um, so yeah, it, I think it is it is worth noting that these brands do go to quite you know uh, quite long lengths to to make sure their bikes are, are safe. In in factors case, they they actually went a step further than a lot of brands in terms of um, trying to crash protect the bike. So they had a lot of uh, a lot of um, experience in knowing that um, in in normal events when someone say hits a curb that the compression ring of a headset can actually groove the carbon and then create a stress riser that then can cause a uh, a steer tube failure and they actually came up with something that would prevent that from happening um in this case they didn't foresee the the force from inside the steer tube causing the same a similar stress riser but uh but yeah i think it is worth pointing out that none of these brands are trying to make unsafe products it's just yeah they're perhaps at the same time with you know the the market is pushing them towards being a little too close to the limit. Yeah, I mean that that is definitely an important point to make. That you know, there I've seen comments saying like, oh, you know, these 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 bike brands are just you know they're kind of being reckless, like they're trying to mm. kill us, so on and so forth. I mean, none of these brands want people to get hurt on their bikes. None of these brands want their bikes to fail, and like like for all for all those reasons that you already mentioned, Dave. And yeah. You know, the, these engineers and designers, I do, I mean, they obviously want to make cool stuff that people want to buy, but they do, I believe, have the absolute best of intentions as far as the safety of their product goes, mm. because it, it doesn't benefit anyone to have something out in the market that isn't going to be safe to ride. Yeah. It's going to cost Canyon a couple million bucks, right? At, at least, at least. So, yeah. Yeah. Not something they want for sure. Nope. But- not not high on the on the target priority list for when these bikes were when or for when these bikes were developed. So, I would like a feature where the handlebars come off at random intervals. Yeah, <laughs> check, 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 check. Nailed Done. It. Nailed it. All right. Well, speaking of new bikes, uh, another one that just hit the market not too long ago, Envy Composites. They last week announced that they are getting into the road frame business with two custom carbon models, the Race and the All-Road, both with fully custom frame geometry, including a fancy custom one-piece bar and stem, clearance for 35 mil tires, if you want that much clearance, uh, aero tube shaping, custom paint, and integrated seat mast, fully internal cable riding, and actually pretty good claimed weights of around 850 grams for a raw 56 centimeter frame. Uh, As expected, it is quite expensive. Uh, it's seven thousand dollars for a frame fork cockpit seat mast topper combo, uh, otherwise chassis. known as a chassis. No, speak. <laughs> uh, but 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 I know it sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But when you compare it to other flagship product from major man, uh, from major mass manufactured brands, it's pretty much in line, and in fact, actually slightly cheaper than what you might find from some other high end custom carbon builders. When you take into account stuff like that included cockpit and the seat mask topper, and the custom paint. So Envy doesn't think this is going to cannibalize their wheel and component sales to custom builders. But you got to wonder, like, you know, do we get a sense that people might actually decide to go with something like this over, say, I don't know, like a custom mosaic or moods or something? I mean, it's, it's carbon, right? So you, the, the, the people that were maybe interested in a Pali or similar carbon custom, absolutely. But I think if you're, if you're looking at a mosaic, then you're probably buying it because it's metal right right yeah i don't know I, I think a lot of i think a lot of people are just sort of shopping a price range and shopping a type right like right. i want custom and i've got this much money mm. uh so i think that i think possibly yeah envy envy has always been very strong with that market anyway they've done very well with the custom builder market they you know how many bikes at nabs every year are just covered in envy it was it was quite a, actually a clever thing on their part quite early on from a marketing perspective to sort of associate themselves with all these really cool builders because you know they, they do make high-end stuff and a lot of people buying high-end bikes these days are are buying custom bikes or just think custom bikes are cool and so therefore think envy is cool it's good associative branding for them yeah so I, I i think that that customer knows envy that customer likes envy i think it's very possible that they that they take you know a bit of market share there 
Yeah. It's kind of a cool design too. I mean, the fact that you can go full custom with carbon, that's pretty neat. Uh, and it, you know, offers something that is, is a little bit, a little bit different than sort of the big names, right? Uh, you know, it's, it, it does set them apart, even though it might not set them apart from Parley, it sets them apart from Specialized and Trek and all the rest that also make bikes that are $12,000, you know, yep. full retail. James, what's the construction of the frame like? What's the, how are they doing this? Well, yeah, I guess the other way that this frame is pretty different, I mean, typically with custom carbon frames, they're usually they are built in what's termed tube to tube construction, where it's not entirely dissimilar from what you would do with a welded metal frame. And you have, you know, a bunch of frame tubes, in this case, carbon, and you, you, you cut and miter them so that they kind of butt up to each other pretty, pretty well. Um, and then you bond them together with basically fancy epoxy, and then you wrap the joints with more carbon. So uh, in doing that, you are able to have a lot of flexibility in terms of the frame geometry. Uh, the downside with that, however, is you are kind of somewhat limited, uh, a little bit more limited in terms of shaping, I guess. Um, and instead of that, what Envy has done here, they have kind of created this system where they have nine separate molded parts. Uh, and most of those parts have like little stubs on them that, that the adjoining parts can join to. Um, and instead of having cut and miter tubes, they have this system whereby, you know, the, you can figure out what, what sort of combination of these nine different section lengths and shapes and whatnot uh, can be combined to create whatever geometry that you want. And these joints then, they're, they're kind of moved a little bit further away from the actual tube intersection. Um, and then they are still bonded and then overwrapped, but they're kind of more overwrapped, kind of closer toward, um, I mean, not quite in the middle of the tube, but just, but also just not at the joint. Um, it, it's actually not entirely dissimilar to what Specialized introduced when they when they kind of unveiled that smart weld technology with aluminum, because um, aluminum frames you know had been made mostly the same way. It was just you know round round ish tubes, you know, a lot of hydroform and whatever. But the the joints were still cut and mitered, and then you weld at that joint. Um, but with this smart weld thing, what uh, what they ended up doing was they had these hydroformed sections of frame. And then they moved the weld points to kind of a little bit further away from the joint. So there's lower stress there. Um, you can make the frames lighter. You can have more advanced shapes. I mean, a lot of those specialized frames, they, they look like carbon in terms of the shaping. Like, like you look at an, uh, an LA Sprint, for example, and it doesn't look that all that different from a tarmac. Um, and yeah, so it, 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 it is sort of analogous that uh, what, what it is sort of analogous what Envy has done here with that too. Uh, James, sorry to interrupt you. I have a very important phone call. That's okay, Kaylee, because we are not doing the hammer segment today anyway, so we will save that for another day. <laughs> I will be back with my hammer. Bye, everybody. Wait, wait, wait. Frame construction on this NV. So it, it is kind of ironic. Uh, someone did point, or I, I think probably more than one person pointed out in various comments on you know Facebook or on the article itself and whatnot, um, that... In a sense, Envy is kind of separating themselves and how this frame is put together. Um, but at the same time, like it's kind of funny how the actual profile of the bike is, I mean, sorry to put it this way, Envy, I mean, it is kind of generic. Like it's, you know, truncated airfoil tubing and, you know, sloping top tube, unless you want a level top tube, in which case they can supply that for you. Um, but, you know, dropped seat stays, that sort of thing. Like there's a lot of pretty, you know, pseudo standard features that are on this bike. Um, so in a sense, like it's not necessarily all that visually impactful. It, like you don't look at it and say like, Oh, that thing's really different. Um, that may have actually been one of the desirables though, because I wonder if someone buying this thing, like they want custom, they are, if, if they're going for custom, they want custom geometry. They probably want something that fits them. Uh, Chances are, if you're getting something custom made, custom fit for whatever specific geometry you want, my guess is that that customer is less likely to just churn through high-end bikes year after year. Um, so maybe they specifically wanted something that had a little bit more of a slightly classic look and feel to it. So hard to say. Yeah. There's also uh, the fact that those those elements that you speak uh, speak about are, are proven, right? So it's... Yeah, they work. Uh, yeah, they they work. They're well proven, which is why they're common. Um, so yeah, it's. I think in that sense, the MV's kind of ticking off a box in that they're they're meeting the needs of a modern performance rider 
with the I guess with the desire to have something custom, which is is a unique segment of the market. There isn't a lot of competition there at the moment. So nope, um, not at all. So yeah, it's it's an interesting bike, and you know, as Kaylee was saying before, it's it's also interesting that a lot of the the customers out there already in the custom bike market, a lot of the converted customers that are are used to spending this much on a bike and are used to going the customer out, uh, pretty much used to having Envy components or at least an Envy fork on their bike. So, I mean, the brand notoriety and the brand recognition is all there already. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's actually a smart move on Envy's part, even though it is surprising to go after such a niche. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and one thing that Envy mentioned is that, you know, they are not, you know, looking long-term, they're not looking to just do Envy-branded custom frames. Um, they do see the possibility of potentially being kind of more of like a, almost like a, like a small volume contract manufacturer for some brands potentially. Um, so this is definitely more of a long-term play for them, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, certainly looking at the fact that, you know, it really wasn't that long ago that Envy wheels were kind of like, like they were the ones to have as far as if you wanted like a really cool high-end wheel set. Um, but there's a lot more and a lot of really, really good competition on that front now. Yeah, it's uh, not just terms, yeah. Yeah. Not just in terms of like technical performance features, but also certainly in terms of pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that Envy's wheel sales, you know, just like everything else bike related in the pandemic has been through the roof this year, but uh, I'd imagine that their position has probably not been as strong in very recent years as it had been before. So expanding into frames, I think is again, probably a smart business move. So it'll be yeah. pretty cool to see how this goes. Uh, I have a test bike in right now, so uh, haven't ridden it yet. Weather hasn't really been super conducive to that, but yeah, I mean, I, I have I have high hopes. I mean, it, it I find it kind of reassuring that you know the frame is not crazy crazy light. I mean, eight fifty is a pretty reasonable figure these days. Mm. Um, you know, the bike has fully internal routing, but the steer tube is round. The fork is pretty chunky. Um, you know, they didn't really go to extremely great lengths to make things like super tiny and svelte. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Oh, enjoy that. On the flip side of the pricing spectrum, this is the last thing on our list here. Uh, we recently published a Bikes of the Bunch feature from Vela Club member Francis Lim, who I think is in, I think he's in Hong Kong, uh, where he put together a carbon fiber hardtail mountain bike based around a no-name open mold frame, open mold carbon rims, and stuff that he was mostly able to order online through AliExpress. Uh, and he, what he ended up with was a super light 8.2 kilo build uh, that's just over 18 pounds in freedom units. Uh, and his total expenditure was less than $3,000, I guess, excluding, I think he had like a handlebar and like one other, one or two other small items already on hand. Um, so, you know, we were chatting earlier in the show about how hard it is to get a bike these days. Mm-hmm. Is this a route that people should maybe consider if they know what they're doing? Because he was able to put together a pretty cool looking bike for not a huge amount of money. And more importantly, he actually has it in hand right now and is riding it. Um, yes, if they know what they're doing, as you, as you asked. Um, I mean, that's, that's a fairly broad assumption there. But it, yeah, I mean, if, if people are confident in their ability to, to shop and source components, knowing that it'll all work together and that they're buying from reputable manufacturers, then there's no issue here. Um, the issue is when you, you sort of go onto Alibaba and you, you, you find yourself the cheapest option or the one with no real track record. That's when things get really sketchy here, when you, when you truly don't know what you're buying, whether it's safe or not. But if you're buying from a manufacturer that has thousands of sales and, and reports all over the internet that they're, that they're a quality manufacturer and the manufacturer is actually uh, communicates with you as a customer and can tell you about the products and can, can show you that they've passed, you know, ISO testing on their frames and they do internal testing and that they, they do batch control and all that, then I don't think there's a problem here. Yeah. And it, I should also mention that, that Francis does have a fair bit of experience doing this sort of thing. I mean, this was not his first rodeo, so to speak. Um, he has built from the ground up, you know, several other bikes, uh, you know, from the frame. And he, I think he, he did say specifically that he stuck to, you know, kind of online brands or manufacturers, factories, however you want to term it, um, that like you said, did seem to have pretty good reputations or ones that he had used before. 
So granted, that is still kind of like anecdata and not actual data. But I guess if you have a lot of anecdotal information, then that is still at least a little bit more reassuring than like a sample size of one. Um, but I mean, his bike looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the outcome's great. I mean, that that weight and that price and, uh, you know, as long as the geometry is good and, and the ride quality is okay, then I mean, that bike's going to be great. But what I would say is um, with any of these purchases where you're moving away from a known locally supported brand, you need to accept that you're probably taking on the risk yourself. Uh, so in this case, like say, say it was me and I wanted to get a frame off Alibaba, import it from China into Australia. I'd save, you know, maybe the frames $1,500 landed or, or less $1,200 landed compared to a frame that might be $3,000 locally. But if that frame has a failure, uh, a manufacturer defect or anything, and these things do happen, every brand has some, some level of a failure rate with their frames. Um, if you got a dud where they, where they made a mistake with the frame and, and it cracked, chances are you're going to be out of pocket to get that frame warranted. Uh, you know, the manufacturer might step up and send you a new frame, but you might also have to send the one you've got back to them and they might not accept that that burden themselves so whereas if you're buying locally you're buying from a trusted brand yes it's more expensive but those costs are, are going to be absorbed i guess and and they're going to look after you and there's local consumer laws that protect you in these things whereas yeah there is definitely more risk in uh in doing what francis did right because if you have an issue it's not like you can go to your local aliexpress store and be like hey i'm having an issue can you help me yeah yeah it's more like sending off an email and hoping for the best yes fingers crossed so and, and that the brand's still around and all that so uh yeah i mean it's 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 a very different purchase this and i, I guess the the customer making this purchase needs to yeah have the experience to do so um confidently but also do so knowingly um that if something does happen that things probably aren't going to go as smoothly as you might like mm -hmm. but again if you are willing to assume that risk and if you do know what you're doing you can kind of get around this whole bike shortage thing just with a little bit of extra creativity and skill. So yep. kudos to Francis for pulling that off. And, you know, hopefully he can keep us, uh, keep us posted as to how that bike continues to ride long-term because I'm kind of curious to see how that is because it does look pretty good. So again, well done, Francis. Yeah, and expanding on that theme, I mean, I guess we were just kind of talking about frames and stuff there, but like group sets, he, he used some parts that aren't, aren't from the big three manufacturers as far as drivetrains go. And I think that's actually quite valid as well. If you're struggling to find like a, a derailleur or, or a group set for your bike, you should absolutely be looking at some of the, the lower cost alternatives out there. Something like MicroShift. Uh, I haven't checked their availability. I, I assume they're probably in a similar boat to Shimano and SRAM as far as parts availability. But some of their group sets are incredibly good value um, and actually do work quite well. So, I mean, I think I think there is something to be said for in in times like these where parts availability is so is so uh difficult to come by um you should absolutely be looking to these smaller brands because there are a, a number of options out there that don't get enough credit yeah like uh francis used i think uh was it like a leonardi mm -hmm. cassette uh, yeah. that that he said shifted just fine and and as a nice bonus it actually came with a orange anodized cassette sprockets that kind of you know worked with his desired color scheme so that was kind of fun um, but yeah, I think there certainly is a little bit more freedom to do that sort of thing on the mountain bike side, just because there's not quite this, this need for everything to like really, really be paired together or not even need, but almost kind of like just sort of, uh, expectation that everything match as far as like yeah. your brakes and shifters. Like, you know, you don't have that quite, quite that same level of integration. So you can play around a lot more with that stuff. Um, and another thing to think about is if you are having a hard time getting the complete bike that you've been looking for. Uh, if you are able to get a frame uh, and you are able to get some of these kind of lesser known components that you hadn't heard about before, um, you know, chances are you will save a fair bit of money over what you were planning to buy. You will still end up with a you know, perfectly functional bike. You might actually like what you ended up buying and weren't expecting to buy. Uh, and at the very least, it hopefully will just tide you over until you're able to actually get the stuff that you really wanted to get the whole time. So it still is a way to get on a bike that you basically wanted for potentially less money that you were planning on and you don't have to wait as long. So, you know, there seems to be a lot of upside, again, if you are willing to assume some risk. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it can be fun. It can be fun for sure. Potentially frustrating as well, uh, but definitely, <laughs> definitely potentially a lot of fun. 
Uh, and you know, definitely something to think about in 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 kind of the the COVID times as far as availability goes. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our show for today. Uh, thanks as always for listening. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe to Nerd Alert uh, and the other podcasts in the Cycling Tip family. Uh, actually, uh, and please subscribe through whatever service you use to get your podcast, and please leave us a rating or review. Uh, definitely please encourage your friends to listen and subscribe as well. And absolutely, please consider becoming a member of our Velo Club program because that sort of independent funny is what actually allows us to produce stuff like this. So it really does work. Thanks again for listening and we will see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers.